Today we're going to be in John chapter 5, back into our Seeing Clearly series. I don't know about you, but I'm really enjoying this process of taking a slow trip through the Gospel of John. I hope you are. Um, but one thing that, that I am finding, a couple things that I'm finding is, are, I know a lot of things about God, but I could know God a lot better. You understand what I'm saying? I could probably win a trivia contest about the Bible with most people. But how well do I really know God personally? And as I'm taking this slow trip, preparing sermons, spending time reading through the Gospel of John again and again, I'm, I'm finding that I'm getting to know Him a little better each time. And I, I hope the same is, is true for you. And today we're going to look at a, a um, I would say story, but that a true historical event where we get to know Jesus just a little bit better. And I've called this sermon Parking in Chinatown. Now there's your dead giveaway that I haven't swindled this one off to anybody. I don't do that. But I've never heard of a sermon called Parking in Chinatown. And I'll give you the opening illustration, and we'll see if it ties in. When I was a wee young lad, probably, I don't know, nine, ten years old, my mom and dad took my sister and me, it's grammatically correct, into Chinatown with my cousins, my aunt, my uncle, and they had three kids, two boys and a girl. And went into the city, and my dad, we took two cars, because there were nine of us, and my dad um, found two spots, side by side. These are parallel parking spots. They don't have big lots, unless you have big money. And my dad pulled in, and my uncle went to pull in right behind us, and another guy swindled in and, and nosed into the spot before my uncle could back in. Well, my uncle, as I'm, as I'm speaking, I'm wondering, does he listen to these things online? <laughs> my uncle, he, he's a fiery little man. I don't know, he's probably like 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, my dad is 6'4". When I was a kid, my dad, he ate right. He was a big man. You know, he's, he's probably about 240 pounds now, and, and he looks skinny to me. He was, he was closer to 280, and he was, he was like tank-like. Well, my uncle came flying out of the car, and the other guy came flying out of his car, and they were about an inch apart, nose to nose, and the other guy was a foot and a half taller than my uncle. And I know for a fact that the only reason my uncle is still alive today is because my dad was standing on the sidewalk. And I'm sitting in the back of the car, and I'm fired up like I'm going to watch a Mike Tyson fight, and I have a front row seat. And I love these types of things, because when you grow up with Tank Dad, you know, you never have to be afraid your dad's going to get whooped. And they're squared off. And the cars are nosed into the spot, and it's going to come to blows at some point, and someone's going to die, and it's going to be the greatest trip to Chinatown. I wasn't a Christian at the time, is the only reason I talk like this. <laughs> if I was a Christian, I'd be praying for the two men to... to... And you want to know what happened? you have to wait. <laughs> End of the sermon. Today we're going to look at John chapter 5, the first 17 verses. And as we do, I'm going to show you what this has to do with parking in Chinatown, I hope. Otherwise, it'll just be a fun story that we'll talk about. And it says here, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic... Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm going another steps down before me, Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. 
Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. When you read a Bible passage, you've got to start by saying, Why, 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 why? It's a straightforward story. Jesus shows up at a place. There's an invalid. He heals the invalid. The invalid goes and tells the Pharisees and Sadducees it was Jesus. Jesus says, my father's working. I'm working. Good deal. Should I close with a benediction? You got all you need out of that? When you read a passage like this, you got to slow it down. You got to ask yourselves, what's going on and why is it going on? After this, there was a feast of the Jews. After what? Remember Jesus healed the official son? After that, there's a feast to the Jews in Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. Why did Jesus go there? It's a fair question, no? What do you know about this place called Bethesda? Anyone have any idea what it is? It was a, uh, a pagan-like pool outside of the temple gates. This was a, a sanitarium, a pagan sanitarium, and it was a combination of Hebrew religion and Greek superstition. It's a place we know archaeologically. It stood right outside the temple, uh, the temple walls. And it was a pool where people went for healing. And they believed there was a shrine to the Greek god of, pardon my pronunciation here, Asclepius. I think that's how you say it, Asclepius. It was a Greek god of medicine. And, and the people believed that an angel would come and stir up the waters and it would get bubbly. And the first one into the water would get healed. So you had a bunch of invalids sitting around a pagan pool waiting for the water to get stirred up by an angel so they could jump in and be healed. Now you say, Pastor, how do I know you're not making this stuff up? Could someone read John chapter 5, verse 4? Anybody got it? It's right between 3 and 5. John chapter 5, verse 4. Oh my gosh! There's no verse 4 in the Bible. We've uncovered a mystery. The hidden verse of the Gnostic Gospels will now be revealed to you. If you look way, way down on the bottom, in your Bible, it should be somewhere there, it says, verse 4 would read, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed and whatever, of whatever disease he had. Now you know why that's at the bottom and not in the top? It was a scribal addition onto the inspired text that was explaining what happened at the pool. There was no real angel that came down and stirred the water. We know for a fact that geologically under this pool is a natural spring that would burst up hot water and cause bubbles to spill out. That's how I know what's going on at the pool of Siloam. But it's a combination of Greek superstition and Hebrew religion. And you have to ask yourselves, what was Jesus doing at a place like this? Shouldn't he have been inside the temple walls as opposed to the pagan, pagan places outside of it? Fair question? We'll talk about that. And he walks up to this guy, and the Bible tells us that he was an invalid for 38 years. Why does it tell us he's an invalid for 38 years? Well, 
If you want to know what the average lifespan for a person was in first century Rome, you want to take a wild guess of what the average lifespan for a male was at this time? 38 years. So you put it into contemporary language, it would be, there was an invalid hanging out by a pagan pool, he was 74 years old. What it's saying is this guy's been an invalid his whole life and he's knocking on death's door. From birth to death, this guy has been an invalid almost to death. So it tells us he's 38 years. And Jesus asks him a fairly straightforward question. Do you want to be healed? The guy's coming day after day to the pagan shrine to get healed by jumping in the bubbly water. He's been an invalid his whole life. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And the man's going to, of course, say, heck yeah, look, I'm here, right? But it's not what the man says. The sick man said, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus doesn't say, listen, bud, that wasn't the question. I said, do you want to be healed? I don't want to hear why you haven't been healed. So that's what we have going on in this story. We got Jesus hanging out at a pagan pool, an old, old man who's been an invalid his whole life, with an opportunity to be healed, given a reason why he can't be healed. Do you know anyone who's an invalid? You know any spiritual invalids? Anybody ever been a spiritual invalid? Jesus asks everybody a question, and we're going to dig in this today. And his question is this, quite simply, do you want to be healed? And those of us who have come to faith, we've answered, yes. But most people out there have lots of excuses. Oh, well, you see, I can't know who God is. Oh, well, you see, the Bible isn't what it says. Is Oh, well, you can go to heaven anyway. I'm not sick. I don't need to be healed. But we're also going to see the man's answer doesn't only apply to non-Christians. It applies to us sometimes as well. We're going to see how this relates to Chinatown by doing the why, why, why sermon approach. Why this place? Why this day? Why this man? All right? So, why this day? Says right here, verse 9. Now, that day was the Sabbath. We got any math whizzes out there? Man's 38 years old. How many days in 38 years? You want to see how smart I am? Don't watch my eyes. 13,780 days. In 38 years. How many Sabbaths? 1,976. Quick subtraction, you find out there were 11,804 days when Jesus could have healed this dude and not done it on a Sabbath. So why, why, why the Sabbath, Jesus? Is he cruising for a bruising? 11,000 days, almost 12,000. He's got to pick a Sabbath. 38 years he's waiting to heal this guy and he comes showing up on a Sabbath. In Jerusalem during a feast. Why does Jesus pick this day? Jesus didn't come down from heaven to start a new religion. He wasn't like, well, we got Judaism, and I know Islam's coming about 500 years down the way, and you got Buddhism, and and you got all these pagan things, and pantheism. Let's start something called Christianity. And God the Father says, sounds great, son, do it. He says, awesome, I'll get 11 followers, another one will try to kill me, and over time it will grow. It'll be great, we'll call it Christianity after me, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to restore true religion. Jesus came to not abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He was a Jew. He came to complete Judaism. We call ourselves Christians. You know what you are? You're polished off Jews. Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. He came to restore true religion. And one of the things he did was he came to deal with a little problem called legalism. You know what legalism is? It's a coulds and couldn'ts. You can do this, you can't do this. And if you keep the laws, God loves you more. 
You might get into heaven if you don't keep the laws, you're up the crick. Legalism's fun. No dancing, no smoking, no drinking. Do this, do that, do this. If you don't do it at the right time, you're in big trouble. Don't eat fish during this time. Eat fish during this time. Say a prayer at this time. Don't say a prayer at that time. Pray this way. Don't pray that way. Don't touch this. Touch this. And you're good with God. Well, it's how the Pharisees and Sadducees live, and it's how a lot of people live today. Even the, even the non-religious types. If you do your best, you go into heaven. What's well, legalism? Jesus came to uh, get rid of legalism. He came to install grace. Jesus came down to show the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Jewish authorities, how ridiculous their ways were. One of the things they did was they put laws on the Sabbath. 39 laws about work on the Sabbath. I want you to write them down. Okay, last year we did Bible memory, this year we're doing Sabbath laws. We're going legalistic, period. We are going hardcore Pharisaic this year. Not really. Two of the rules were, you can't heal on the Sabbath, you can't carry load on the Sabbath. Those are two of the 39 rules. Where did they come up with these rules? You picture a smoky room, right? Kind of like an old school Vatican for Jews. Moshe, we need laws for the Sabbath. Oi, we shall do some laws. Let us say, no carrying a load on the Sabbath. I like this. Scribe, write this down. And the plume of smoke comes out, you know, he says, now we will say no one may heal on the Sabbath. Yes, we Pharisees are awesome. Where did they come up with this stuff? Is that, is that where the laws for the Sabbath came up? Go back to a book like Jeremiah. Everybody knows Jeremiah inside and out, right? If you go to a book like Jeremiah, and I'm going to get my citations right because Renee is back this week. And if you go to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 21, you let me know what you find there. This one's a real verse in the Bible. It's not a hidden one. Jeremiah, I'll start in verse 20. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who enters by these gates. Thus says the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives, and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day, or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. What does God say through Jeremiah? Do not bear a burden on the Sabbath. Oh! So, did they know what they were talking about? These weren't idiots. These were, these were men who knew Scripture. What they didn't know was context. Jeremiah was speaking to a people that had taken the Sabbath and made it business as usual. And God was saying, this isn't business as usual. This is the Sabbath. It's a holy day and keep it holy. Quit commercializing it. Quit carrying your goods in to sell them and peddle them on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees took it too far. See what I'm saying? You misapply Scripture, you have a disaster on your hands. The Pharisees and Sadducees, wise men of Scripture, misapplied it heavily. And I would bet many people didn't know Scripture well because they had it read to them and taught to them. Jewish people don't read Bibles at home very much. They have them read to them when they go to temple. If you don't read the Bible and you just have me tell you what the Bible says, you're setting yourself up for a world of hurt potentially. Because you have to check that what I'm saying is biblically accurate and in the proper context. Otherwise, I say, God says you can't carry a load on the Sabbath. Look at Jeremiah 17, 21. You all got to start walking here next week or you're in bad shape with God. What do you do with that? You look at the context. You say, Pastor, you're out of your mind. I say, thank you for clearing that up. I needed the context. They ruined the context. And what they did was they took a blessing from God and turned it into a burden. 
The Sabbath was a day of rest. Remember Jesus cleaned out the temple? He was saying worship was his. It was for him. Now he's coming after the Sabbath. He's saying it's mine. It's about grace. It's not about legalism. And Paul recorded some words about 100 years later. Less. More like 60. You've been saved by faith through and not by... Yeah. The Pharisees didn't like that. They like carrying or not carrying. They like healing or not healing. So Jesus comes flying in on this day and he does some healing and tells the guy to get carrying. We're going to talk a little bit about why Jesus acted that way. Why this day? Jesus was laying claim to what's his. Our lives, Jesus will lay claim to what's his. When you come to faith, guess who's got the deed to your life? Everything you are and have is his. If we obey God, it's a blessing. If we don't, it's a burden. But the choice is ours. Jesus comes to lay claim to what's his. Let me ask you this question. Don't answer out loud. Are you living legalistically in any areas? Are you trying to please God by the doing? If so, do you want to be healed? It's a question Jesus asks us, isn't it? Are you refusing to give Jesus what's rightfully his? Does a part of you not want to? Jesus asks the question again, do you want to be healed? That's something to think about. Why this day? Well, that's part of the reason. Why this man? We don't know the guy's name. I don't know that we're going to meet the guy. You know why? Do you want to be healed? What do you say? Here's why I can't be. Did Jesus pick the wrong guy? It's a pagan pool filled with multitudes of invalids. Multitudes. That means more than a couple. And he picks this one guy. Come on, man! You ever watch a ESPN, the Come On Man segment? All the ladies are like, what the heck is he talking about? <laughs> watch more sports. You'll be more up on my service. So, the guy walks in, and if I'm watching Jesus, he walks up to this man, and I'm sitting there as an invalid saying, what about me? Come on, I, I, this, do you want to be healed? Ah, me, I want to be healed. But he picks this guy, and he says, do you want to be healed? The guy's basically saying, can't, can't do it, tried, not working. Does Jesus make a mistake here? No. So Jesus says to the guy, get up, carry your mat. The man takes his mat, and I'm still in Jeremiah, let's go back to John. And when he's carrying his mat, remember, on the Sabbath, during a festival time in Jerusalem, when everybody's there, the Jews said to him, the Jews is what John uses to speak of the Jewish authorities. They say to him, it's the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to carry a mat. And what does the man say? Well, well, I'm only doing it because I got to heal me, told me to do it. I don't want to do it, but he said to do it. I'm sorry, what am I supposed to do? The man's a chicken. He's a chicken. He's an ungrateful wuss. He, he's an invalid for 38 years. He gets up. He walks. He's completely healed. You cannot carry a load on the Sabbath. Well, he told me to. What am I going to do? <laughs> Imagine you wake up Saturday, and you hear this horrible noise at 6 a.m. Look out your window, and your neighbor is running around the yard yelling, Woohoo! 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 But your neighbor's paraplegic. Your neighbor has never moved anything below their neck since you've lived in the house. Let's say, hypothetically, they're 38 years old, and they've been a paraplegic since they were born. Their spine never connected right, they've never moved on their own. 
And Saturday, they've been on ventilators, stuck in bed. Woohoo! Woohoo! You open the window. What do you say? Shut up! It's 6 a.m. Or do you say, oh my gosh. Did I just really yell shut up in a sermon? Sorry about that. Or do you say, oh my gosh. Uh, uh, honey! And your jaw's hanging and you're drooling. How do you respond? You know how the Pharisees respond? 6 a.m. Back inside. If you want to yell, yell at the appropriate time. Let me ask you another question. How should that man act? If he, if he gets up at 6 a.m. and he's, whoa, I'm moving. And he looks over and Jesus is standing right there. He says, get up. Go outside, do some yelling. Do you say, I, I can't. It's 6 a.m., the neighbors are sleeping? Is that the first thing going to cross your mind? Or do you run outside and your neighbor tells you to hush it down and you say, give me a stick and break. For 38 years I've been laying in a bed paralyzed and now I can move. I ain't laying down being quiet till I run out of energy. How do you respond? You want to make it really awkward? If you were dying of a terminal disease, hypothetically called sin and you were healed. And you didn't just have the ability to move on your own. You had the ability to live for eternity in God's presence in a sinless state, growing ever more into a Christ-like person. Being empowered by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the same power that created everything. If that happened to you, how would you respond? Would you jump up and sing praises to God? Or would you wake up some days and just be like, dude, seriously, I'm tired. Would you, would you turn your life over to God and whatever he said you would do because you know how good and awesome and mighty he is? Or would you say, look, thanks for making me the paraplegic move again, but now that you've done that, I need to take the reins back because, see, I know what I'm doing. Or would you think... If a man can heal a paraplegic, you think he can handle the rest of your life? If a man could cure sin for all of eternity, if a man could make all of everything and sustain it for all of eternity, if a man was God and came down to heal you, how would you respond? And if your neighbors yelled at you, not out the window, quiet, it's too early, but keep your God business out of my face. Keep God out of the public sphere. I'm tired of your intolerant nonsense. I don't want to hear it anymore. Do you say, I'm sorry. God just told me I was supposed to tell people. I really don't want to do it, but, but God told me to. You know how we've gotten to the point where talking to people about Jesus is highly uncomfortable and awkward and we prefer not to do it? Imagine you were paraplegic and you're healed. Are you going to say, oh my gosh, I don't want to tell anybody. They're going to think I'm crazy. Or are you going to say, I'm telling every stinking buddy I can. Because the guy said he'd heal other paraplegics. Everybody's dying of sin apart from Jesus. And guess what he says? You don't have to come to a pagan pool. You don't have to find me. I found you. And I can cure you of the worst terminal disease any person's ever had. You see, there's some nasty stuff out there, but we're all going to die. The question is, where do you go after you die? Paraplegic dies, they're going to start moving on the other end, hopefully in God's presence. The Christian dies. That's the beginning of the story. That's pretty awesome stuff. Starts out by Jesus saying, do you want to be healed? So why this man? 
I think Jesus is giving us an example. Uh, He's teaching us a lesson. He's using an ungrateful, self-focused wimp who missed the gift out of fear to talk to people like me. I'm not going to call anybody out there an ungrateful, self-focused wimp. I'll call myself that. But at times, that's exactly what I am. I completely miss the reality of what Jesus did for me. And I'm scared to tell the neighbors because they might think I'm crazy or I might wake them up. I'm scared to trust him to use all the areas of my life his way and I create a whole bunch of burdens that are designed to be blessings. You know how Alexander the Great is? I read a great story about a deserter from Alexander's army. Ran away in a battle and they caught him, brought him back. Alexander wanted to see him. He said to the to the man, boy, 17-year-old, why did you run? The guy said, I was scared. Can you imagine how you're feeling at this point when you're looking at Alexander the Great in the eye? The most powerful man the earth had ever known, apart from Jesus. And you ran away from him because you wimped out. And they drug you back in front of him. Why did you run? Because I was scared. And Alexander says to the guy, what's your name? The guy doesn't speak. He says, speak up, son, what's your name? He says, Alexander. And Alexander the Great looks him dead in the eye and says, change your behavior or change your name. You see, I think Jesus tells us the same thing. You ever been embarrassed about Jesus? You ever want to deny Jesus to other people? I won't read it. Take a look at Mark 8.38 sometime. If you're ashamed of him, he'll respect it. He won't acknowledge you. Following Jesus is a tough thing. It's serious business. We don't do it for our agenda. We do it for his. If we're following Jesus to try to get what we want out of him, I think Jesus says to us, change your behavior, change your name. If we want to be God and tag Jesus onto the back, I think Jesus tells us, change your behavior, change your name. But the beauty of Jesus is he says, if you love me, I'll help you change your behavior because you can't do it on your own. And then you can call on my name anytime. You can be called by my name because you become mine. You become a child of the King Most High. And that is the most awesome privilege you can ever have. But you need to remember a verse like Galatians 1.10. It says, Do I now seek the approval of man or of God? If I seek the approval of man, I'm not a servant of Christ. If you're concerned about yelling because you might wake up the neighbor, you might want to change your name. But if you know what, what God has done for you, if you understand it fully, and you understand what he calls you to because he did it, remember Galatians 1.10 and start hooting and hollering because he's offering to cure everybody in the whole world if they'll just call on his name. Why this man? I think that's part of the reason. Why this day? Why this man? Why this place? Jerusalem, during a festival, on the Sabbath. Couldn't he have gone out into the wilderness Jesus hung out in the wilderness sometimes, right? Why not do this in a cave? Why not find an invalid in a leper colony, nobody's around, and just, boop, go, walk, nobody's looking. You're healed. Why not? He's taking a stand. I think he did it here so the masses would see what he did and go and proclaim it. I think he did it here so he could directly confront those who had turned the blessings into burdens. I think he did it here to show us who he is. If you make a picture of Jesus in your mind, what does he look like? 5'7", 150 pound wuss? I mean, really, what does Jesus look like? Real clean nails, well-kept hair, pressed white robe, 
and feet that never get dirty or smell. And he kind of hovers about this far off the ground. And he might have a little halo, and everybody keeps their distance from him. And someone carries all his stuff. You know, so if Jesus is going to read out of the Bible, someone drops down in front of him and holds the scroll. If he's thirsty, someone brings him a special golden goblet of water. Yeah, he's just this pristine, effeminate Jesus who moves in gentle, ever-flowing motions. Jesus was a bad dude. I mean bad in a good sense. You know the song, Bad, Bad, Leroy Brown, Baddest Man in the Whole Darn Town? Badder than old King Kong, meaner than a junkyard dog. I think Jesus is closer to Bad, Bad, Leroy Brown than the effeminate version we got. See, because on the south side of Chicago was the meanest part of town. And in Jerusalem, by the temple, was the meanest part of town. Because you had some Pharisees and Sadducees screwing with people. Messing them up. Keeping them from knowing who Jesus was. And Jesus came walking into town one day. And I guarantee you there was no effeminate, Pharisees! Dirty, sweaty, smelly Jesus came walking in. And I would love to have seen what he looked like. I would have loved to have seen his posture. It was not the puff chest... Jesus didn't put on a show like an angry dog. It was a confident, bold man who was God with a gaze that would burn a hole through your soul if you did not love that man. But if you love that man, it would be a gaze that would give you greater comfort than you could ever believe. And he walked in, and he says in verse 17, My father is working until now, and I am working. And that gaze could knock you flat on the ground. We'll get to that point. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? They came to get him. Some folks hit the deck. You know why? Because you have entered into the presence of God, who is man. And he he didn't pump up his muscles. He didn't stick out his chest. He had a confidence you could not fathom. No person on this earth has ever walked with more confidence than Jesus. No person has ever been tougher than Jesus. No person has ever been stronger than Jesus. This is a bad man. And this bad man came into town because he was claiming what was his. And he did it at this time because he wanted to make it public. Jesus was not averse to conflict. This was a man who who would conflict with you if he had to. This is a man who's not all about tolerance. This is a man who is about truth. He is about right and he is wrong. You are on his side or you are not on his side. You love him or you hate him. There's no middle ground. And he came down to restore true religion and say, join me or flee from me. You make the choice. You want to be healed, I'll heal you. You want me to leave you be, I'll leave you be. But let's not screw around, people. I'm going to put reality in your faith. I am the way and the truth and the life, he says. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus said things that ruffled feathers, no? Because you'll see that because he worked on the Sabbath, people persecuted him. And next week you'll see that because he spoke the way he did and claimed to be who he claimed to be, they decided to kill him. Do you think Jesus was afraid? Oh, God, please don't let them hurt me. Nobody's going to hurt Jesus unless Jesus lets them do the hurting. You understand that? Jesus walks in to make very clear who he is. And I would love to have seen the posture, and I would love to have seen the gaze. And you want to know something? We're all going to see it one day. Everybody will be judged by God. The non-Christian and the Christian will be separated. The non-Christian, by their choice, will go to hell. God doesn't send people to hell. God saves people from hell. But they got to accept the gift. He doesn't make them accept the gift. Boom, judgment one. Judgment two. If you're going to heaven, you're going to have a sit down. With who? Jesus. You know those eyes that will scare the boots off you if you don't love them? 
they're going to be right in your face, right across from you. You realize that. That same man, the same body that he was resurrected in, those same eyes are going to glare into our eyes and we're going to have to ask ourselves a question. What's that going to feel like? When you look spot into Jesus' eyes, are you going to smile? Or are you going to put your head down a little bit? Are you going to say, yeah! Or are you going to say, oh? You're going to live a life of regrets or a life of obedience? Because, folks, every day, we're going to have a review. Woodrow Kroll wrote a book called Facing Your Final Job Review. It's kind of what it's like. Jesus is making a point here. His point is this, it's all mine. Why is it all his? Because he is God. Why did he come? Because he wanted to be in control of people? Please. This is God. God does not have a control complex. God is simply in control by default. God wasn't lonely. Jesus didn't say, God, it's kind of lonely up here with just me, you, the Holy Spirit, and the angels. We need some people to come up here with us. This is dull. So they decided to go get some people they call the elect who come to faith and bring them to heaven for all eternity. God doesn't need us for joy. But God loves us and wants to give us joy. And the only way to know joy is to know Jesus. It's to trust Him. To let Him heal you. To give to Him what is rightfully His. And to allow the burdens to be turned into blessings. When you look into those eyes, what are you going to see? I was thinking this morning, you ever feel overwhelmed by time like you don't have enough of it? God doesn't give us time as a burden. He gives it to us as a blessing. You know why we get burdened by it? We're not using it His way. You ever have a hard time managing your resources? Yeah, you ever stay up late at night or get up early in the morning sweating about how to care for your kids, manage your finances, deal with your house, or fix a problem? You know why it's a burden? Because you're not doing it God's way. Jesus says that His, his uh, yoke is easy and His burden is light. Right? Do you feel like that all the time? Because what we've done, folks, is we've taken blessings from God and turned them into burdens, and we do it by not using them His way. Back here it was the Sabbath. God blessed the people with the Sabbath. He said, on the Sabbath day, it's a day of rest. Keep it holy. The people put a bunch of regulations around it to try to please God. Jesus said, I don't, I don't want your works. I want your heart. They had turned a blessing into a burden. Think about all the areas in our lives where we turn blessings into burdens by trying to control them ourselves. Jesus came to heal us. Jesus came to guide us. And Jesus came to turn all of his blessings into what they are and to turn them away from the burden side to the blessing side. Let's go back to Chinatown. My uncle and the big man, toe-to-toe. And it's going to come to blows. And my three cousins who are my uncle's kids, they're a little scared because they're about to lose a daddy. And me and my sister yelled out the back window to El Dorado, Get him! Get him! Get him! And it is far apart. And do you know what happens? My uncle digs a quarter out of his pocket. And he says, look, let's just flip the coin. You call it. You get it right, you get the spot. You get it wrong, I get the spot. Flips the coin, lands on head. The man calls tail. They shake hands. My uncle gets the spot. The man moves on. And I'm peeved. <laughs> what the heck does that have to do with John 5? I don't know, but it's a good story, isn't it? <laughs> In that case, they flipped the coin, and the coin determined how to handle the situation. They each had a selfish agenda, right? They each tried to manipulate the situation for their own plan. 
They each tried to ram their agenda through without a care for the other, and they flipped a coin, and the coin decided, how about instead of flipping a coin, we look at God? Not for the spot, but for every area of our lives. God, what would you have me do, rather than what do I want to do? What is your will for my life, as opposed to what's my life plan? How do I be God-confident instead of self-confident? And the more we live like that, the more we let God determine our plans, as opposed to the flip of the coin or our own will, the more we'll experience the reality of Jesus Christ for who he is, the baddest man in town, bad is a synonym for extraordinarily good, you understand that? Who is God in the flesh, who is just as real as any person in this room, who is in heaven right now praying for us, who has sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us, who we will meet one day face to face, eye to eye, and give an account for how we live our lives. We're saved by faith through grace and not by works. But when you finish off into, into verse 10, you'll see that God has prepared works for us to do. We do not because we have to. We do because it's been done. We can't help the doing. But then when we look at our lives, we think, well, I can actually help the doing. I'm not that motivated all the time to do. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? You want me to help you with that? Do you want me to help you experience what it means to be unable to help but to do? The Bible tells us we looked at last week. Uh, that Second Corinthians passage, in there was, God loves a cheerful giver. Do you feel like a cheerful giver in all areas of your life? Would you like to? Because Jesus can do that for you. But you've got to trust Him. You've got to go by His plan, and you've got to let Him turn the burdens into blessings. And the more we do that, folks, the more we understand that we got it so much better than a paraplegic who jumped up. The more we're going to hoot and holler at 6 a.m. on a Saturday. No, we're not having uh, walkabouts at 6 a.m. on Saturdays. But the more we're going to proclaim to everyone we know the reality of what's been done to us. Because here's the problem I have. Maybe you have this problem too. Intellectually, I fully understand that I was separated from God by my sin. That Jesus Christ covered that gap, restored me to a right relationship with God, and I get to spend eternity in heaven. I can intellectually argue the reality and the truthfulness of Scripture. It's a very easy thing to do. But I don't always live like it, because I don't always, I think, but I'm insane a little bit. I don't always believe that Jesus is who he says he is, will do what he says he will do, and can do what he says he can. I'll give you an example. Bible memory verses, right? Oh, I'm not letting those go, people. I'm not letting them go. You thought 2010 ended, it was done. It's hard to memorize scripture, no? It's really hard to memorize Scripture. It would take a miracle to memorize Scripture. Huh? Right? Did we talk about that last week? If God calls us to do it, it'll be done if we trust Him, but we've got to ask Him and lean on Him. God loves a cheerful giver, but I ain't a cheerful giver. God tells us to go out and make disciples of all nations. Got news for you folks, you can't do it, but He can. See, the beauty of a walk with God is this. It's a life of you can't do it, but he can and it's done. It's a life where we obey God through living the way he calls us to, doing what he calls us to, and we're like a little sapling planted by streams of living water that grows and bears much fruit as we do it his way. And oh, the stories we can tell. Oh, we can say, we were an invalid who was healed, we were a paraplegic who could move no better than that. We were separated from God by sin, and he healed us for all of eternity. 
And that's great because it's about me, but it's also about you. How could you not tell somebody about that? The only reason is because you don't fully understand it and you don't fully trust Jesus. I'm in that camp right now, but I am determined to get the heck out of that camp. I want to be yelling at 6 a.m. on Saturday morning. If I'm offending somebody, let me offend them. But here's a beautiful thing about the Bible. God already knows who's going to be saved. He already knows who's going to come to faith. So you know what that guarantees? If you start telling people, there are guaranteed yeses out there. There are people whose ears are waiting to hear the gospel right this very moment. Maybe they live next door. Maybe they're a phone call away. Maybe they're, they're, who the heck knows? Maybe they're sitting on Facebook, sitting on a train next to you. Who knows where they are? But there, are, there is guaranteed harvest out there. And we get to go out and look for it and proclaim the reality of it because Jesus wants that none should perish but all should have eternal life and we have the words of life and we've been given life so why this day? it's his why this place? it's his why this man? he's his too and the man is a bit like us if we're honest but I'm not comfortable staying like that man forever I want to be the person who says Yes to Jesus every moment because I know who he is and I trust him. I want Jesus to be more real to me than anything in all of creation. And the more that happens, the more amazed we will all be by what God can do with an insane wimp like me in a world like that. Let's pray. Father God, you are truly an awesome God. You are... I understand why Paul goes with it, inexpressible. What do you say? How do you describe you? Holy perfect, magnificent. I think my uh, relationship to bad, bad Leroy Brown might be a bit of a stretch. But God, help us understand that, that you are not a wimp. You are not a pushover. You are one tough dude. You are the one who gives life and sustains life. You are the one who allows us to draw breath and provides the air which we bring into the lungs you've created within us. And God, you have blessings beyond measure to give to us. And all we have to do is give you our yes. All we have to do is trust you and follow you and allow you to to bless us beyond measure. But for some reason, we're a screwy people. We want to turn it into burdens. We want to be in control and make a mess of it so we feel like we have some ultimate say over what happens. God, the number of our days have already been recorded. There's no sense worrying about that, you tell us. You will provide for us perfectly every moment of every day. And as we'll see in the weeks ahead, you're not giving us just enough to get by. You're going with the abundance, a life of abundance. Thank you, God. God, I pray you would reveal yourself to us more fully this year. I pray that you would become so real to us that we would experience the reality of your healing, the reality of your presence, and the reality of your blessings in ways we can never fathom. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.